1 Corinthians chapter 15, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, as we are going through the New Testament currently in the book of 1 Corinthians. And this morning in chapter 15, Paul begins his discussion on the resurrection. And we're going to look at verses 1 through 19 this morning, which deals with the resurrection of Christ. And Lord willing, next Sunday we'll begin with chapter 20 to the end, which deals with the resurrection of the Christian. So far, Paul has dealt with divisions, discipline, and difficulties in the church, the church of Corinth. Now he deals with disbelief in the church. And the subject Paul deals with on the resurrection serves two purposes. First, he deals with the matter of the resurrection of Christ in verses 1 through 19. And then the resurrection of the Christians in the remainder of the chapter. Now, in a weird kind of way, we can thank the Corinthians for all of their quarrels and all of their questions. And the trouble that they caused in the church of Corinth. Because, you see, they gave Paul the chance to deal with these matters that have been of great interest and importance to the church ever since, then and now. Think of how much we'd be missing if we didn't have Paul's lengthy discussion, uh, discussion about the gifts and without his great sermon here on the resurrection. This is probably one of the most important chapters of the Bible. It's so important because it actually answers the first heresy of the church, which was the denial of the bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. In chapter 15 here, Paul is coming to the third great spirituality. He dealt first with carnal things. Then he dealt with those things that seem so important to the Corinthians and still seem so important to us today. And then he dealt with, the, with spiritual things. How wonderful and encouraging it is to know that every believer has a gift from the Holy Spirit. Every believer. And knowing that God has given you and me a gift so that we can function in this world. And that we're to be partners with Jesus Christ in the great ministry of making him known to the whole world. And then Paul goes on to the great love chapter. Chapter 13. All gifts are to be exercised in love, and love is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Love is not something we can work up, that we can just, you know, do all that we can to work it up. It's a gift of the Spirit. Galatians 5, 22 and 23. It's given to us. And above everything else, we need to see this fruit of the Spirit in the life of the believer. Now, we come to the third great spirituality, which is the resurrection of Jesus Christ and our own resurrection. The glory of the Christian faith is that it never looks at life as ending with death. This life isn't the end when it's over. It's just the beginning of eternal life. It looks out into eternity. It looks to a life that's beyond 
The Christian faith always looks beyond the life, uh, this life to a life that's beyond. Again, looks to, into eternity. And what a wonderful hope it offers us. And this is another reason that gives meaning and purpose to life. This great resurrection chapter actually deals with the gospel. And it shows that the most important part of the gospel is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because without it, everything else, including Christ's death, is meaningless. Paul said in Romans 4.25, He was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. Jesus died for our sins. But in his resurrection, he gave us a sure and wide open door into heaven. We stand in his righteousness. It's because of his righteousness that enables us to stand before a holy God. It's his righteousness that enables us to go into heaven. He was delivered for our offenses, but he was raised again for our justification. That is our righteousness. The resurrection of the dead. The resurrection of the dead. This is not something that's spiritual. It's physical. The resurrection of the dead is mentioned in verse 12, 13, 21, and 42. Again, it's not a spiritual thing that Paul's talking about. It's a physical thing. The word resurrection is the Greek word anastasis. It means standing up again. And then of the dead... The word is necron. It's a corpse. So it's really the standing up of a corpse. The resurrection of dead. That's what it means. Put the two together. It means a standing up of a corpse. These bodies of ours are to be raised one day. And resurrection in scripture always refers to the body. It can't refer to a spiritual resurrection. Scripture teaches us that resurrection means to stand up. And in Paul's day in Corinth and in the Roman world, there were three philosophies about death and life after death. There was Stoicism, which taught that the soul merged into deity at death. That is, this was there was a destruction of the personality. But such a concept makes the resurrection non-existent, fictional, and imaginary. Then there was the Epicurean philosophy, which was, was materialistic. It taught that there was no existence beyond death. Death was the end of all existence. Third was Platonism, which taught the immortality of the soul Believing in a process like transmigration that is to pass at death from one body or being to another. And you'll find the teaching of uh, Platonism today in the religions of India and in the cults of America. It denies the bodily resurrection. It was more like reincarnation. And because of these philosophies, when Paul mentioned the resurrection while he was in Athens, they thought he was talking about a new God. This was something new. And we need to understand very clearly that Paul is not talking about a spiritual resurrection. The soul does not die. The soul continues to exist. The minute a body dies, the person goes somewhere. 
If the person is a child of God and they're born again of the Holy Spirit, Paul said to be absent from the body means to be present with the Lord. No limbo. No purgatory. You're present with the Lord. If a person is not a child of God, then he goes to the place of torment. That's what our Lord Jesus called it in Luke 16, 19 through 31. Listen to what Jesus said. So it was that the beggar died, and he was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried, and being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes, and he saw Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. Now he is comforted, and you are tormented. And besides all this, between you and us, uh, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot nor can those from there pass to us. Paul establishes the resurrection as an undeniable fact of history. And at the heart of the Christian gospel is the resurrection of Christ. No other religion is based on the historical fact of a bodily resurrection. And this is what makes Christianity so unique. It sets sets us apart from all other religions. It stands or falls with that, with the resurrection. Paul gives a fact of the, to the Corinthians that they couldn't deny. His fruit in the gospel. With that little bit of background, now let's begin in chapter 15, verse 1. And Paul says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand. Paul reminds them about what he preached to them when he preached on Mars Hills in Athens. The intellectual Greeks gave him a fair hearing until he mentioned the resurrection of Christ. They laughed at him. It was the proclamation of the resurrection of Christ that separated the living and the dead. Paul preached Jesus Christ crucified at Corinth. But he never left Jesus on the cross. He always went on to say he was risen from the dead. And he reminds them of what they professed. Look at verses 2 and 3. By which also you are saved if, notice the word if, you hold fast the word which I preached to you unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. The first thing Paul does is take us to the cross. Take us to the cross. There can be no doubt that Jesus died. There were hundreds of people who saw Jesus die in that day. Jesus not only died, but his body was pierced by a Roman soldier's spear. To show once and for all that he was dead. Now, some say that that Jesus just passed out. And and that when he was passed out, he was put in a tomb. And then the cool air of the tomb revived him. And he managed to get out. He managed to get past the guards and he found a place to hide and he waited in that place until the third day and then he showed himself to everybody and said, hey, I resurrected. First of all, to believe this story, it says, you're really gullible. 
you know, are asked to believe that Jesus really didn't die. And in order to believe that, we have to believe that a Roman soldier in charge of the execution left the scene before he made sure that Jesus was dead. But we know that he did make sure because his last orders were to speed up the death of the three men being crucified because the Sabbath was close. So he was ordered to break their legs. This was done to the two thieves. But the soldiers were blown away when they came to Jesus because he was already dead. So they didn't have to break his legs. But a soldier pierced his side and blood and water came out, which was proof that Jesus was really dead. John takes his oath that this is what happened in John 19, 35. And then he adds a scripture report, a support, a scriptural support for why this happened. For these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled that not one of his bones shall be broken. John 19, 36. In order to believe Jesus passed out, we're also asked to believe that the Lord's enemies, the Sanhedrin and its representatives who had plotted and schemed for weeks to bring about his death would leave Calvary without making sure he was dead. We also have to believe that the Lord's friends, Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea, and the faithful women who took him down from the cross and lovingly prepared his body for burial would have embalmed a body that still showed signs of life. And besides this, besides all of this, we have to believe that Jesus revived in a tomb that he was able to get out of those bandages that he was all wrapped up in, tightly wrapped, and then he carefully put them back on the stone slab in such a way that it would look like he had risen through them, and that with every bone in his body out of joint, weak and wasted by exhaustion, pain, suffering, loss of blood, he was able to roll away that stone, sealed like it was. And get by the guards without being seen. And most incredible of all, we have to believe that on the first day of the week, he carried out this deliberate hoax by pretending to have been raised from the dead. Contrary to everything we know about his character, integrity, and overwhelming honesty. Wouldn't it be so much easier to just believe the simple gospel truth, Jesus died? Jesus died. And the reason being, he died for our sins according to the scriptures. Every animal sacrifice in the Old Testament for 1,400 years pointed forward to the cross. It pointed forward to Calvary, to the ultimate sacrifice. The once and for all sacrifice. The whole Jewish religion was based on Calvary. So Paul takes us to the cross. Verse 4. <clears throat> Paul says, And that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Here's another proof of the resurrection. But where does the Old Testament declare Jesus, is re Jesus resurrected on the third day? Well, Jesus pointed to Jonah. 
Matthew 12, verses 38 through 41, Jesus said, For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The Apostle Paul, he also compared Christ's resurrection to the first fruits. And the first fruits were presented to God on the day following the Sabbath after Passover. And since the Sabbath must always be the seventh day, the day after Sabbath must be the first day of the week or Sunday, the day of our Lord's resurrection. So this covers three days on the Jewish calendar. Apart from the Feast of First Fruits, there were other prophecies of the Messiah and the resurrection in the Old Testament. In Psalm 16, Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, and Psalm 2. Verses 5 and 7, 5 through 7. And that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep, that is, some have died. After that he was seen by James, and then by all the apostles. Then, last of all, he was seen by me, also as one born out of due season. Proof of the resurrection was confirmed by many witnesses. Here Paul lines up all kinds of eyewitnesses to Christ's resurrection. He was seen. This wasn't just a word of mouth thing. It was seen. He was seen. Paul said he was seen by Cephas in verse 5. That is Peter. Peter had a private and personal moment with the risen Lord. And he no doubt told Paul all about it when they were together in Jerusalem. Peter also saw him on the shore of Galilee when when Jesus challenged him and asked him if he really loved him. In John chapter 21, one of my favorite chapters. Jesus met him on the shore. Disciples thought that all their hopes were dashed. He'd been crucified. He'd been buried. They thought they'd never see him again. And there he was on the shore making breakfast for them. And when they recognized it was Jesus, they all, man, they all jumped out of the boat and they drug the fish to shore. And, and, and Peter and, and, and Jesus had that, that conversation. You know, three times he asked Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? And Peter said, you know I do, Lord. And, and again, Peter was restored back to service. So again, Peter... You know, saw him on that shore, was challenged and asked if he, was, if he really loved Jesus. Then Jesus was seen by the twelve. The twelve, the, the men that he discipled, except for Judas. And then he was seen by his flock, over 500 people. Verse 6 tells us. The quality of these witnesses, the quality of these specific, uh, specific witnesses is represented by the apostles. All of them. They were all known by name. They could easily be questioned if people wanted to ask them about, hey, did you really see Jesus? The quantity of the witnesses is seen in the 500 brethren who all saw the risen Christ at one time. Now, Scripture doesn't tell us who these people were or where Jesus appeared to them. 
but they were definitely well known in the early church. And like the twelve, would have often been questions about seeing the risen Savior. Even at the time of Paul's writing, more than 20 years later, most of the witnesses were still alive. Some had died, according to verse 6. And at the same time and same place, 500 witnesses saw Jesus alive after his resurrection. And then verse 7 tells us that Jesus appeared to James. Now, we're not told which James Jesus appeared to. Because two of the apostles, one the son of Zebedee and the other the son of Alphaeus, uh, were named James. But this James was probably James' half-brother. Jesus' half-brother, the author of the letter and a key leader in the Jerusalem church. Remember, James was originally a skeptic. Like his brothers, he didn't believe at first that Jesus was the Messiah. But now, this member of Jesus' own family, his own household, this one for several years did not recognize Jesus as the Christ. Now he was a witness, a powerful and convincing witness to Christ's resurrection. And maybe as with Paul, it was the experience of seeing the resurrected Christ that finally brought James to a saving faith. But whatever the case might be, the convincing testimony of a family member and a former unbeliever was added to that, uh, to that of the apostles and the 500. And Acts 1.3 says over a period of 40 days between his resurrection and his ascension, Jesus appeared to all the apostles on other occasions that aren't specified. What Jesus was doing during that 40 days when he was being, a, being a witnessed by all these people, it's Jesus was, was showing them, look, it is me, it is alive. There is life after death. Our relationship isn't broken. Here we are. You recognize it's me. We're talking. We're, we're eating together. It is me. There really is life after death. He's merging the known with the unknown. He, he's, he's wanting to remove that fear of death you know, from the people. Before he went back to heaven. What a great hope that would give people. What a, what a great expectation. Now, hey, you know, there is hope. There is life after death. Jesus is here and he shows. And, and it's the same Jesus that, that, that I knew before he, he, he physically died. That one day, you know, when we know that we're coming to the end. Hey, we're looking forward to it. Jesus went about really removing fear from, from death, merging the known with the unknown. Verses 8 through 11. Then, last of all, Jesus was seen by me also, Paul said, as by one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was in me, was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Then there was the testimony of a special witness, 
The fourth key testimony of Jesus Christ's resurrection was the Apostle Paul himself. A special and unique witness of the resurrected Lord. Because Paul wasn't among the original apostles who had all, who had all been disciples of Jesus during his earthly ministry. Paul wasn't one of them. He was among the 500 others who had seen the resurrected Christ. Rather, he had, been the, he had been an unbeliever and a chief persecutor for many years of the church. He was once Christ's biggest enemy. Now he was one of Christ's greatest witnesses. He was the last of all allowed to see the risen Christ. The Lord's appearance to Paul not only was post-resurrection, but it was post-ascension before he went to, to glory, making Paul's testimony even more unique. It wasn't during the 40 days where he appeared to all the others, but several years later. All the others, all the others that Christ had appeared to, except maybe James, <clears throat> were believers. Where Paul, you know, at the time was known as Saul, he was violent, he was hate, a hateful unbeliever when Jesus revealed himself to him on the road to Damascus. There were also other appearances. Jesus appeared to Paul, uh, as it's mentioned in verse 8, as it were, to, to one born out of due season. Paul said, he appeared to me as one born out of due season. The ordinary, this, this ordinarily referred to an abortion. One born out of due season... Ordinarily referred to an abortion, a miscarriage, or a premature birth. A life unable to sustain itself. But the way Paul uses it here, the words indicate hopelessness of life without divine intervention. And he gives the idea that he was born without hope of meeting Jesus Christ. But the use of the words in the sense of an ill-timed birth, too early or too late, it seems to fit Paul's thought the best. He came too late to have been one of the twelve. In carrying the idea of unformed, dead, and useless, the words were also used as a term of contempt. Before Paul was converted, before he got saved, which happened at the same time uh, as his vision of the resurrected Lord, Paul was spiritually unformed, dead, and useless, a person to be scorned by God. Even when he was born, he says it was wrong timing. Christ was gone. How could he be an apostle? But yet, by special divine revelation, Paul says, Jesus appeared to me too. The amazing grace of God. Even though Paul never doubted his apostleship or hesitated to, to use the authority that came with his office, he also never stopped being amazed that of all people, Jesus called me to that high position of an apostle. Paul not only considered himself to be the least of the apostles, but he considered himself not even to be fit to be called an apostle because he persecuted the church of God. Those hands that wrote these beautiful letters at one time were covered with the blood of the Christians 
that he murdered. Paul knew all of his sins were forgiven. He wasn't overwhelmed by feelings of guilt over what he'd done once against, uh, uh, at one time against God's people. But he couldn't forget the things that he had been forgiven for. It continually reminded him. In verse 10, he said, by the grace of God, I am what I am. For all of us, by the grace of God, we are what we are. Paul knew he didn't deserve God's grace. He knew he didn't deserve God's forgiveness. None of us do. And it was a constant reminder of how graciously God had been to Paul and the grace that God had given Paul, as with all of us, the goodness and the grace and the mercy of God. It's possible that Paul's memory of having persecuted the church of God was a powerful reason for being so determined that his grace would not prove to be in vain. As is clearly confirmed in the New Testament, Paul was able to truthfully say, I labored more abundantly than they all did. Verse 10. I labored more abundantly than they all. Now, Paul wasn't boasting about how much he labored for the Lord. He wasn't bragging about how much he labored and how spiritual he was. He wasn't talking about you know, his spirituality or, or how much power he had in God. Because he was quick to add, again, yet not I, all right, but the grace of God with me. He recognized everything that I've done, have done, I'm going to do is because of God's grace. And that's the same with all of us. Because Jesus said in John 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. The same grace responsible for Paul's calling was responsible for his faithfulness. And God sovereignly appointed Paul to be an apostle and sovereignly blessed Paul's ministry big time. Paul believed, responded, and obeyed. And he was continually sensitive to the Lord's leading and the Lord's will for his life. But apart from God's grace, Paul knew that everything he did would have been a failure. It would have been in vain and it would have been worthless. The truth and the power of the resurrected Christ had brought three great changes in Paul's life. And and you can look at the changes that he's brought in your life. The first change that it brought to Paul's life was his deep recognition of sin. For the first time, Paul realized how far his outward religious life was from being internally godly. He recognized how far from God he really was, though he thought he was doing God a service by taking all of these Christians and putting them in prison and having them killed. He saw himself as he really was. An enemy of God. A persecutor of his church. The second thing that changed him, or how it changed, he experienced a transformation of his character. And that should happen to every single person who's truly born again. If there is not a transformation of character, if if your character is not uh, transformed drastically, then they're, they're suspect to whether you're born again or not. 
Because it's going to take a drastically changed life in order to get into heaven. Jesus drastically changes lives. Just look at the ones who would be converted in the scriptures. They had a drastically transformed life. They left the old way of life and they wanted to follow Jesus many times. Jesus said, no, go home and, and you know, first take your testimony home and then you, know, you can come follow me. But it's a transformation of character. And that's what Paul said, hey, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How do you renew your mind? Through the word of God. He experienced a transformation of character from a persecutor of the church. He became his greatest defender. Paul's life was transformed from a person who was characterized characterized by self-righteous hatred to a life characterized by self-giving love. He changed from an oppressor, uh, uh, from oppressor to servant. He changed from one who imprisoned to one who delivered. He, he, he transformed from one who judged to a friend, from a, a taker of life to a giver of life. You see the transformation? Radical, totally opposite of the old life. We get saved, we can't love the things that God hates, and we can't hate the thing that God loves. The third transformation that Paul made is he experienced a dramatic redirection of energy. As zealously as he had once opposed God's redeemed, he now served them. And the last testimony of Christ's resurrection was that of the common message that every true apostle, prophet, and pastor preached, whether it was I or they. So we preached, and so you believed. Whether it was I or they, whether it was Peter, whether it was the 12, whether it was the 500, whether it was James or anybody else, we preached and you believed. And without exception, the preaching and the teaching in the early church was centered on the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Wherever Christ was preached and whoever preached it, his resurrection was the fundamental message that was proclaimed. And there was no arguing about the truth or the importance of the doctrine of resurrection. Which hardly would have been the case if it it had been made up. Except for a few isolated heresies, the doctrine of Christ's resurrection has not been questioned within the church until our modern age of skepticism and humanism. Like a lot of things that the Bible says, a lot of it was not, you know... um, questioned or, or you know um, you know blasphemed until the later parts of the centuries modernism new testament christianity whether then or now knows nothing of a gospel whose heart is not the risen lord savior jesus christ verses 12 through 19 as we close verses 12 through 19 Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. 
For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep or died in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. At this point, Paul's readers would say, yes, we agree that Jesus was raised from, raised from the dead. And then Paul would reply, if you believe that, then you must believe in the resurrection of all the dead. Christ came as a man, truly human, 100% God, 100% human. And he experienced all that we experienced, except he never sinned. If there's no resurrection, then Jesus Christ was not raised from the dead. And if Jesus Christ was not raised from the dead, then there's no gospel to preach. And if there's no gospel to preach, then you've believed in vain. And you're still in your sins. And if there's no resurrection, then believers who have died, they have no hope. And we'll never see them again. So the conclusion is obvious. Why be a Christian if we have only suffering in this life and no future glory to look forward to? The resurrection is not just important. It is of first importance because all that we believe on hinges on the resurrection. Father, we thank you so much for your wonderful word, God. We thank you so much for the resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Lord. For without it, Father, we're just... We're just here for no reason. But Father, let us, like Paul, want to know him and the power of his resurrection, Lord. Father, we thank you so much for being such a good God and for leaving us, God, your word, so that we don't have to stumble around in the dark, God, like those who don't know you. We thank you for your spirit who leads us and guides us into all truth, who gives us power to do the things, God, that you've called us to do, Lord. And Father, help us to understand we need the Holy Spirit. He's not a luxury. He's not an option. He's a necessity. And Father, we thank you for the offering that we will receive today, Lord. We thank you for your generosity. We thank you for always taking care of us, God. We praise you. We give you honor. And we give you glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.